Section 2 of The Red Lamp by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. June 16th. Commencement week is over at last, thank heaven, and with no more than the usual casualties. Defeated at the ball game, 9-6. to six. Lear down the Tomain, results of bad ice cream somewhere or other. Usual reunions of old boys, with porters staggering under the suitcases, which seem to grow heavier each year. Nevertheless, the very old ones always give me a lump in the throat, and I fancy there was a considerable amount of globus hystericus as the class of seventy marched onto the field on class day. Only eight of them this year, Uncle Horace being missing, poor old boy, which reminds me that Jane thought she saw him with the others as they marched in. Wonderful woman, Jane. No imagination ordinarily, meticulous mind and only a faint sense of humor, yet she drags poor old Horace out of his year-old grave and marches him onto the field, and then becomes slightly sulky with me when I laugh. I told you to bring your glasses, my dear, I said. How many men are in that group? She demanded tensely. Eight, and for heaven's sake, lower your voice. I see nine, William, she said quietly, and when she stood up to take her usual snapshots of the alumni procession, she was trembling. A curious woman, Jane. So another year is over, and what have I to show for it? A small addition to my account in the savings bank, a volume or two of this uneventful diary, some hundreds of men who perhaps know the Cavalier poets and perhaps not, and some few who have now an inkling that English literature did not begin with Shakespeare. What have I to look forward to? Three months of uneventful summering, perhaps at Twin Hollows, if Larkin ever gets the estate settled, and then the old round again, Milton and Dryden and Pope, Edison and Swift. Mr. Sims, have you any idea who wrote The Ancient Mariner? Or have you by chance ever heard of The Ancient Mariner? Wordsworth, I believe, sir. Yet I am not so much discontented as afraid of sinking into a lethargy of smug iconoclasm. It is bad for the soul to cease to expect grapes of a thistle, for the next stage is to be old and a cynic, a carrion crow, like the old man in Prince Otto, with rotten eggs the burthen of my song. Yet what is it that I want? My little rut is comfortable, so long have I lain in it that now my very body has conformed. I fit my easy chair beside my reading lamp, my thumbs are broadened with much holding of books, I depend on my tea. Yesterday, calling on Lear, I must have voiced my uneasiness, for he had once suggested a hobby. His bed was littered with mutilated envelopes. Nothing like it, he said. It's the safety valve of middle life and the solace of age. I'm not quite sure I want a safety valve, I said, and I fancied he looked at me suspiciously. A hobby? Shall I gather postage stamps and inquire of a letter not from whom it comes, but from where? Or adopt Jane's camera and take little pictures of unimportant folk doing uninteresting things? Or go, as Lear finally suggested, a-fishing? Is it to be my greatest adventure to pull a fish out of the water and watch it drown with wide-open mouth in the air? Ah, me. Greatest rest in the world for the brain, Lear said. Fishing. I'm not sure I want a rest for my brain, I protested. I dare say what I need is a complete change. Well, try Tomaine, he said dryly, and with that I went away. But I dare say Lear is right. The prospect of my three months' vacation has gone to my head somewhat, and I dare say, too, that I am much like the solitary water beetle Jock found on the kitchen floor last night, that is, willing enough to leave my snug spot behind the warm pipes of life until danger threatens, or discomfort, and then all for scurrying back, a tremble, into unexciting security again. June 17th. After all, security has its points. I am the object of a certain amount of suspicion today on the part of my household. There is no place in the world, I imagine, for a philosopher with a sense of humor, a new leisure, and an inquiring turn of mind. In fact, I sometimes wonder whether any philosopher belongs in the present day and generation. These are times of action. Men think and then act. Sometimes, indeed, they simply act. But a philosopher, of course, should only think. And all this because last night I set Jane's clock forward one hour. 
Because, forsooth, I had determined to cease casting my eyes out on the world, and to study intensively that small domain of my own which lies behind the drain-pipe. During some nine months of the year I bring home to Jane from the lecture-rooms the mere husk of a man. Exhausted with the endeavor to implant one single thought into a brain where it will germinate, I sink into my easy-chair and accept the life of my household. Tea. Dinner. A book. Bed. And this is my life. My existence, rather. But with the close of the spring term I find a faint life stirring within me. Isn't this a new tea, I will say? You have been drinking it all winter, Jane will reply, rather shortly. Yesterday was my first free day, and last night I wandered about the house, looking over my possessions and rediscovering them. You've had the sofa done over, my dear. Before Christmas, Jane replied, and glanced at me. In return I glanced at Jane. It dawns on a man now and then that he knows very little about his wife. He knows, of course, the surface attributes of her mind, her sense of order. Jane is orderly, her thrift, and Jane is thrifty. She has had to be, but it came to me suddenly that I knew very little of Jane, after all. She is making one of those endless bits of tapestry, which some day she will put on the seat of a chair, and thereafter I shall not be expected to sit in that chair. But it is not a work which requires profound attention. She was working at it at the moment, her head bent, her face impassive. What are you thinking about, Jane? I asked her. I really wasn't thinking at all. I dare say from that I fell to speculating on Jane's mind, and that does not imply criticism. Rather on the contrary, for Jane has an excellent mental equipment but I am sometimes aware that she possesses certain qualities I do not possess. For example, it would be impossible for me to imagine, as Jane did on class day, that I saw Uncle Horace. Although, like all men with defective vision, I have occasional optical illusions. But it is equally impossible for me to deny that she did see Uncle Horace, and there has been a certain subtle change in her since, which convinces me of her sincerity. What then, I considered, is the difference between Jane's mind and my own? She has some curious ability, which she hides like one of the seven deadly sins, and which makes her at times a difficult person with whom to live. I have already recorded in this journal that one occasion in my life, when at the reunion of my class, 1896, some wag proposed mixing all that was left of the various liquors in the punch bowl and drinking a stirrup cup out of it, and the fact that I was extremely dizzy on my way home. But I did not record, I think, the fact that after I had quietly entered the house and got myself to bed, Jane came into my room. "'Oh, so you are back,' she said. "'Certainly I am back, my dear.' It seemed unnecessary to state that neither she nor the doorway in which she stood seemed entirely steady at the moment, nor did I so state. But perhaps it was not necessary, for after eyeing me coldly for a moment, she said, Were you supporting the chapel half an hour ago, William, or was it supporting you? I don't know what you are talking about. Don't you? she observed, and retired quietly, after removing my shoes from the top of my bookcase. But the humiliating fact remains that I had stopped for a moment's rest beside the chapel, and that somehow Jane knew it. Or take again that incident already recorded in this journal, under the date of June 28th of last year, when she awakened me at seven o'clock and said she had seen Uncle Horace lying dead on the floor of the library at Twin Hollows. Dreams, I said drowsily, are simply wish fulfillments. Go on back to bed, my dear. The old boy's all right. I wasn't asleep, she said quietly, and you will have a telephone message soon telling you I was not. And so true was this that she had hardly ceased speaking before any Cochrane called up to tell us she had found him at seven o'clock dead on the library floor. Note. In preparing these notes for publication, one thing occurs to me very strongly, and that is this. It is curious that my wife's vision, or whatever it may be called, did not occur until some hours after the death. If there came some mental call to her, why not when he was an extremis? Not only would it have helped us greatly in the mystery which was so soon to develop, but it would have been more true to the usual type of such phenomena. In this case, 
If we are to admit anything but coincidence, it is easier to accept the fact that we are dealing with mental telepathy. In other words, that the servant Annie Cochran, who actually found the body at seven in the morning, at once thought of Jane and so flashed the scene to her. But I admit that this is merely explaining one mystery with another. So I was reflecting, as Jane pushed her needle through her tapestry, slow, infinitely plodding, and absolutely composed. What portion of Jane, then, wandered out at night and saw me with a death grip on the chapel wall? Or with a fine contempt of distance and a house she loathed, went to Twin Hollows and found Uncle Horace on the floor? It was an interesting thought, and I played with it out of sheer joy and idleness. The Jane, then, whom I could reach out and touch at night, might only be the shell of Jane, while the real Jane might be off on some spirit adventure of her own. I considered this. It has, one must admit, its possibilities. And just then she glanced up at me. "'What are you thinking about?' she asked. "'My dear,' I said gravely, "'I am worrying.' "'What about?' "'About you.' "'I'm all right,' she said. "'Although, of course, I'd like to get away somewhere.' "'That's precisely what I'm worrying about,' I observed. And she looked puzzled, but said nothing. I went back to Jane's mind, with the volume of von Humboldt unnoticed on my knee. Had she true clairvoyance, whatever that may mean? Or was telepathy the answer? She is Scotch, and the Scots sometimes claim what is called second sight. I know that in her heart she believes she has this curious gift. She was, they say, a queer child, seeing and hearing things unseen and unheard by others. And I know she fears and hates it. It is somehow irreligious to her. But... Has she? No immediate answer being forthcoming, I went back to my book, and very soon it happened on the following paragraph. A presumptuous skepticism which rejects facts without examining them to see if they are real is more blameworthy than an irrational credulity. It was, in a way, a challenge, but there were no facts to examine. I could believe that Jane is merely a fine recording instrument on which telepathic impressions are recorded, or I could accept that she is able to leave that still lovely but slightly matronly body of hers on occasion and travel on the wings of space. But because my interest was aroused, I consulted the dictionary on clairvoyance and found that it was the faculty of being able to perceive objects without the customary use of the senses. It was vision without eyes. Even then, on so small a base does one's comfort behind the pipe sometimes depend, all would have been well had not Clara entered with the dish of fruit which is my method of towing the seasons, the winter orange and banana gradually giving way to the early berries which mark the spring, and so on. And with that Jane looked at the clock. That glance was at once my downfall and my triumph. For it occurred to me then to make a simple experiment, and to examine the facts. Jane, I argued, rises by her bedroom clock every morning, and punctually to the minute. But Jane does not look at her clock. Then if I set it forward one hour and set it forward one hour I did, after Jane was asleep, and at the moment its hands indicated 7.30, although it was but half-past six, did Jane open her eyes, rise from her bed without so much as a glance toward the clock, and call her household. So Jane saw her clock without eyes, Clara has been sulky all day, and I am in extreme disfavor. Really, William, Jane said with a sigh this afternoon, you are very difficult in the holidays. Difficult? You know perfectly well you turned my clock on. Why in the world should I turn your clock on? It's your idea of being funny, I dare say. It isn't funny to be wakened an hour too soon, my dear. But she is suspicious of me and cold toward me. Thus I suffer the usual lot of the seeker after truth. And Jane, my dear Jane, can see without her eyes. But she cannot understand why I turned her clock on, for all her curious ability. Nor, after eating the burned biscuits Clara served tonight, can I. But if Jane can see without her eyes if she can perceive objects not visible to those of us who depend on the usual senses, 
than is one to admit that she saw Uncle Horace, as she said she did, marching at the head of his class procession last Tuesday? June 18th. I feel tonight rather like the man who had caught a bull by the tail and daren't let go, and yet I am certain there is a perfectly natural explanation. The difficulty is that I cannot very well go to Jane about it. If it is what it appears to be, and not a double exposure, it will frighten her. If it is a double exposure, she will wonder at my inquiry, and think I am watching her. She has not, even today, quite forgotten the clock. But certain things are very curious. She thought she saw Uncle Horace marching onto the field with his class. So much did this upset her that, when she stood up to take her pictures, the camera shook in her hands. Then she takes the picture, and instead of the eight old men of the class of seventy, there are nine. And she knows it. Why else would she hide the print, and pretend that she had mislaid it? It was that fact which made me suspicious. I'll look them up for you later, William, she said. You aren't in a hurry, are you? In the bright lexicon of vacation, there is no such word as hurry, I observed, brightly. And she, who usually smiles at my feeblest effort, turned abruptly away. So Jane had lost her picture. Jane, whose closets are marvels of mathematical exactness, who keeps my clothing so exactly that I could find it in the dark, save for that one incident duly noted in this journal when I unfolded a washcloth at the President's dinner, having taken it from my handkerchief box. And shortly after, Jane went out for a walk. Jane, who never exercises save about her household. Poor Jane, I feel tonight, face to face with the inexplicable and hiding it like one of the seven deadly sins. There are nine men in the picture. There is no getting away from it. And there is no denying, either, a faint difference in the ninth figure, a sort of shadowiness, a lack of definition. Under Jane's reading glass it gains nothing. The features, owing to the distance, are indistinct, but if one could imagine the ghost of old Horace, in his brocaded dressing gown, and slightly stooped to cough, in that blare of noise, shouting and sunshine, it is there. Later, I have shown the picture to Lear, and he says it is undoubtedly a case of double exposure. What else could it be, he said, with that peculiar irritation induced in some people by any suggestion of the supernatural. I don't think she ever took a picture of him in her life. Well, somebody has, he said, and handed the print back to me. If you don't believe me, show it to Cameron. He's a shark on that sort of thing. Note, Cameron, exchange professor of physics at our university, a member of the Society for Psychical Research, and known, I understand, among the students as Spooks Cameron. But I have not shown it to Cameron, and I do not intend to. I hardly know the man, for one thing. And for another, Lear is right. The university looks with suspicion on the few among the faculty who have on occasion dabbled with such matters. Personally, he said, I think it's a double exposure. But whether it is or not, I'm damn certain of one thing. The less said about it, the better. June 19th. Curious when one begins to think on a subject, how it sometimes comes up in the most unexpected places. I dropped into the dining room for tea this afternoon after Jane's bridge party to find Jane looking uncomfortable and an animated conversation on spiritualism going on with Helena Lear leading it. Ah, she said when she saw me, here comes our cynic. I suppose you don't believe in automatic writing either. I should, I replied gravely. I have seen as many as fifty men taking notes while in a trance in my lecture room. Nor in spirits? Certainly I do, and in the smoke of prophecy and the powder of death. She looked rather blank, and Jane flushed a trifle. What is more, I said, a trifle carried away by the tenseness of the room, perhaps. I know that if I take a piece of chalk, have you any chalk, Jane? And draw on the floor here the magic circle, and a triangle within it, no evil spirits can approach me. Get the chalk, dear. I promise I shall not be disturbed by so much as one demon. In the laughter which followed, the subject was dropped, but Helena Lear, when she gave me my tea, eyed me with amusement. You and your circle, she said. Don't you know that half these women more than half believe you? And don't you? You don't believe yourself. 
Still, I said, remembering von Humboldt, I am not an out-and-out skeptic. I will admit that Jock there, who is acting as a vacuum cleaner under the table, can hear and see and smell things that I cannot, but I do not therefore believe he communicates with the spirit world. But he sees things you don't see, you admit that. Certainly, he may see further into the spectrum than I do. Then what does he see? She said triumphantly. A fortunate digression enabled me to escape with a whole skin, but I think there was something rather quizzical in her smiling farewell. After all, if Jock does see things I do not, what does he see? I'm blessed if I know. June 20th. Jane knows that I have seen the picture and that I know it lies behind her refusal to go to Twin Hollows for the summer. When I came back from Larkin's office today, the final papers having been signed, I could see her almost physically bracing herself. So it's all set, my dear, I said, and if we can get any Cochran to clean the place a bit. Would you mind so very much, she asked, almost wistfully, if we don't go there? But it's all settled. Edith is coming back on purpose. Note. The Edith of the journal is my niece, who makes her home with us. At this time she was absent on a round of house parties. A very lovely and popular girl, of whom more hereafter. It's too large for us, said Jane. I need a rest in the summer, not a big house to care for. And there was a certain definiteness in her statement which ended the conversation. As a result, and following our usual course when there was a difference between us, we have taken refuge in a polite silence all day, the familiar armed neutrality of marriage. An uncomfortable state of affairs, and aggravated by Edith's absence. When she is here, her bright talk fills in the gaps and in the end she forces a rapprochement. Lear has told Cameron about the picture. I met Cameron while taking Jock for his evening walk tonight, and he reintroduced himself to me. After today's repression, I fear it was a bit talkative, but he was a good listener. Evidently, he has a certain understanding of Jane's refusal to go to Twin Hollows, although he said very little. Houses are curious sometimes, was his comment. But on the matter of the picture, he was frankly interested. There is, he said, a certain weight in the evidence for psychic photography, Mr. Porter. Of course, it is absurd to claim that all the curious photographs, and thousands of them come to me, are produced by discarnate intelligences. But there is something, I don't know just what. Jane has gone to bed, still politely silent, and I am left alone to wrestle with my two problems. Where to spend the summer, and why Jane finds the house at Twin Hollows what Cameron describes as curious. A mild term, that, for Jane's feeling about the house. Actually, she hates it, has always hated it. She has had no pride in our acquisition of it, she has even steadfastly refused to bring away from it any of that early American furniture with which old Horace had filled it. Yet she collects early American furniture. I write tonight an utterly inadequate early American desk because of this taste of hers. Jock has, at this moment, curled his long length on the hard seat of a Windsor chair because of it. And yet she will have none of Uncle Horace's really fine collection. Nor is she of the type to listen to any Cochrane's story that the old portion of the house is haunted by the man killed there. Note, an old story not authenticated of the shooting of a man many years ago as he hid to escape the excise. As a matter of fact, none of our later experiences in the house bore out this particular tradition at all. If she has a distaste for it, it may possibly relate to the occupancy of the house by the Riggs woman before Uncle Horace bought it. But even here I am doubtful, for Mrs. Riggs was caught in most unblushing fraud, and entirely discredited as a medium. June 21st. Edith is back. She came in this morning, kissed Jock, Jane, and myself, Jock first, demanded an enormous breakfast and all the hot water in the house, and descended gaily a half-hour later to the table in her usual aura of bath salts, bath powder, and sunshine. Well, she said, attacking her melon, and when do we go to the haunted house? Ask your aunt. She glanced at me and then shrewdly at Jane. Good heavens, she said. Don't tell me there's any question about it. It isn't decided yet, Jane said uneasily. It's a big house, Edith, and... All the more reason for taking it, said Edith, 
and having finished her mullen flung out her pretty arms. Grass, she went on, and flowers, and the sea. I shall swim, she went on, and old father William shall fish, and Jane shall sew a fine seam, and at night the ghosts shall walk, and everything will be lovely. She turned to me. You do believe in ghosts, don't you, father William? And somehow even Jane caught some of the inflection of her gaiety. Ask him about the triangle in a circle, she said. What's that? Edith inquired. The triangle in a circle drawn around you will keep off demons, I explained gravely. Surely you know that. How convenient. And that the skins of four frogs, killed on a moonless night, will make one invisible if worn as a cap? And that the spirits obey Solomon's seal, not the plant, of course. And that if you eat a stew of the eyes of a vulture and the ear tufts of an owl, you will be wise beyond all dreams of wisdom? Who wants to be wise? said Edith. But go on, I love to hear you. Very well, I agreed with an eye on Jane. Now take the figure five. Five is the magic number, not seven. We have five fingers, five toes, five senses. There are five points to a star. Perhaps he noticed my wild excitement when my automobile license this year was five, five, five. Jane got up and I saw that my nonsense had had its effect. She was smiling for the first time in days. If you care to go out and look at the house tomorrow, William, she said, I will go. And perhaps Edith had sensed a situation she did not understand, for she kissed her. And as I left the room, I heard her requesting Jane to bring back with her marketing some frog skins and the ear tufts of an owl. So this afternoon, things are looking brighter. And thus does man deceive himself. Only three days ago I was filled with vague yearnings and aspirations. I recorded here that my little rut was comfortable, but that I feared it. I wrote, Was my greatest adventure to be to drag a fish out of the water and watch it drown, open-mouthed, in the air? And yet, at the mere thought of not going to Twin Hollows, of being thrown on the mercies of some mountain house, or set on a horse in the far west, I have been frightened almost into a panic. The water beetle, indeed. The town is very quiet tonight. The annual student exodus is almost over although still an occasional truck goes by, piled high with trunks. The Lears intend to stay. Seltzer and McIntyre are off for the Scottish lakes, and Cameron, I hear, is going soon to the Adirondacks, where he spends his summer in a boat, and minus ghosts, I dare say. I have mailed him the picture today, and can only hope Jane does not miss it. One wonders about men like Cameron. Slight, almost negligible, as is my acquaintance with him. I would not know him in a crowd, even now. There is something of Scottish dourness in him. He neither smokes nor drinks, he lives austerely and alone. He has a reputation as a relentless investigator. It was he who exposed the hauntings at the house on Sabbath Day Lake in Massachusetts. But he is a believer. That is, he believes in conscious survival after death, and I suspect that he has his own small group here, among them little Pettengill. It would be a humiliating thought for me to feel that after I passed over, as they say, little Pettengill might hail me to him in the light of a red lamp and request me to lift a table. Warren Halliday is on the veranda with Edith, I can hear her bubbling laughter on his quiet, deep voice. After all, I dare say we must make up our minds to lose her sometime, but it hurts. And it will not be soon. He has not a penny to bless himself with, nor has she. I think if I were very rich, I would provide an endowment fund for lovers. But something is wrong with our university system. It takes too long to put a man on a wife-supporting basis. Halliday is twenty-six. He lost two years in the war. And he has another year of law. Truly, Edith will need the eyes of a vulture and the ear tufts of an owl. End of section 2